When the Navy wanted to shift from an aircraft to a, from a battleship Navy to an aircraft Navy, the guy who led them was a battleship admiral, mm -hmm. Admiral Moffat. And he could do that because the Navy respected him. They could not dismiss him as an outsider who was kind of making it up. The United States, as a country, has a 100% record predicting who our enemy is going to be and where we're going to fight. We've been wrong all the time since, you know, uh, nobody told we were going to fight in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. But people have been successful in predicting not who we were going to fight, but how we were going to fight. Hi, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and today we've got a great episode featuring a fascinating conversation about innovation and the military. MWI's Captain Jake Moraldi sits down with Professor Stephen Rosen, a professor of national security and military affairs at Harvard University. The conversation touches on a range of uh, very interesting questions. How and why, for instance, did the US Navy shift from battleships to aircraft carriers after World War I? What gave the US Army the innovative capacity to adopt helicopter aviation after World War II? What makes innovation happen in the military? And perhaps more importantly, what keeps it from happening? Professor Rosen tackles these and an array of other questions in this discussion. Before we get started, a couple quick notes. First, in addition to putting out a new episode of the MWI podcast every other week, we also put out a bi-weekly podcast on the combat experience called The Spear. If you haven't heard it, please check it out. You can subscribe to both wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the U.S. Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the conversation between Captain Jake Moraldi and Professor Stephen Rosen. Dr. Rosen, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us today. My pleasure. Yeah, I, we really appreciate you having, having you here. Um, I want to jump in right off the bat, and for our listeners that are a little bit less familiar with you and with military innovation in general, mm -hmm. start with a, a big question, kind of a definitional question about what you understand innovation to be and, and generally how it occurs mm -hmm. within the, the military space. No, that's a great place to start because... Uh, in the United States, we live in a culture in which innovation is a good thing. So whenever somebody proposes something, we call it an innovation because that gives it a good sound and a good flavor. And people say, yeah, I like that. Um, but not every change is an innovation as I am defining innovation. Uh, if you're making changes in your operations or what you do so that you can do your existing business but do it better, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about an innovation. Some people call that incremental innovation, uh, and it's a good thing, and it's hard, you know, it's hard to do. Uh, when I'm talking about innovation, I'm saying it's not about doing your existing business better. It's about doing a different business altogether. When the American Navy stops being a battleship Navy and being, starts being an aircraft carrier Navy, that's the kind of innovation. The Harvard Business School professor uh, 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 who wrote about disruptive innovation mm -hmm. is talking about the same kind of thing. I'm talking about the innovations that are hard to do because they displace existing status hierarchies. People who got to the top because of, they were good at doing one kind of thing are being told, what you do is not so important anymore, so you're not so important anymore. Uh, 
you're a student, uh, Captain Raldi, of organizational psychology. We're talking about uh, loss of status, loss of prestige, which is one of the most painful things that people face and which they all fight uh, to, uh, to oppose. And it's hard to do. Uh, but it does happen. It has happened in the American case, other cases. And the question is, how did, how did it happen? How did people do something which is very hard to do, which military organizations, any organizations, don't normally do? Uh, and what can we learn from success stories? By the way, the military is difficult to change. Uh, universities are even harder to change. <laughs> if you try to get a tenured professor to change what he or she does, you have a very hard job because you can't do anything to sure. punish these people or reward them. Uh, the military does have some uh, instruments at its disposal. I think there's something really interesting in the way that you defined it, that in a lot of cases, especially when we're talking about organizational hierarchy, hierarchies and bureaucracies kind of gets lost in the shuffle in that there's an organization made up of individuals who have rational self-interest or they have an understanding of how they got to the place they are in that organization. So it's not necessarily something that they want to see change inherently. And military organizations do have special characteristics that are unique to them. They are organizations designed to function in combat, uh, in which you have to expect people to sacrifice their lives for the sake of an organization. Therefore, organizational loyalties, organizational identities, unit identities and loyalties are powerful, necessary, and positive. You know, you can't get rid of them. Uh, people thought, well, I should get rid of stovepipes. Well, yes, getting rid of stovepipes helps the flow of information, flow of information is good, but if stovepipes identify what people do and why they do what they do, they're powerful motivators as well. So you have to be careful uh, getting rid of uh, the identity of regiments and units and so mm -hmm. on uh, could be, could be uh, a double-edged sword. Uh, but uh, the prevailing wisdom uh, on how military innovations took place when I was working on my book uh, was, uh, I think, widely held, but probably not right, mm -hmm. which is military organizations have to lose a war before they innovate. Uh, and what people have in mind when they say that is, well, look, the Germans lost World War I. They invented Blitzkrieg after World War I, mm -hmm. and that's how it happens. Uh, um, sometimes people will say, well, the American Navy got uh, badly beat up at Pearl Harbor. Right. It, that's why it shifted from battleships to aircraft carriers. It's not so complicated. All the battleships got sunk. Mm -hmm. But that kind of avoids looking at some of the interesting uh, counterfactuals or uh, other uh, examples. The United States Navy ships from, aircraft, from battleships to aircraft carriers after World War I, which the United States Navy won. United States Marine Corps invents amphibious warfare after World War One again, it's on the winning side. Army invents or introduces uh, helicopter aviation mm -hmm. after World War Two, which again, as far as I can remember, the United States Army won. On the other hand, there are military organizations that lost wars and which simply didn't have the capacity uh, afterwards to innovate. The, the Russians lose the Russo-Japanese War pretty big time, and they just don't have the capacity to do what's necessary to change. So losing a war motivates you, makes you want to find a better solution, but you may not always do so. So losing wars or losing battles is not necessary and it's not sufficient. So the question is, well, then why does it happen? And the prevailing wisdom, and still kind of argued by Barry Post in this book, is that civilians drive innovation. Right. Uh, military organizations are tradition-bound, they're conservative, officers are reluctant to learn, and some of them may be true. But the answer is, 
civilians are smart. They don't have biases. They don't have any kind of prejudices of their own. And they can make the military do what's necessary. And that, my, my Barry Posen and I have discussed this a number of times, that seems to be, to be at least partially, maybe entirely mistaken. Mm-hmm. First of all, the idea that civilians don't have their own biases, that don't have their own skewed ways of looking at the world in which may make them good or bad at seeing the need for innovation, that's clearly an odd perspective. Right. Civilians have organizational, professional, other kinds of political biases. But more importantly, I think, is the fact that it has to do with the character of military organizations that we just alluded to. You're talking about getting an organization to change the way it does business in, a, in circumstances where people are killing and being killed. And, and when that happens, again, this is organizational psychology, the people say, so you're asking me to do things differently and my people may get killed with that. And you have the right to tell me to do this new thing I forget, why do you have the right to tell me? You have what experience with the conduct of warfare? You have how much knowledge of the actual character of warfare? Have you ever been? Military organizations are political communities in which people who are respected are respected because of their combat leadership. Mm-hmm. End of story. It's it's the way they all, all, all services. It has to be that way. It has to be that way because you're talking about organizations which have to function in combat. Organizations of that kind are going to look at outsiders and say, you have no standing, you have no legitimacy. And we've looked at efforts by civilians, very powerful civilians, like John F. Kennedy said, to, he said to the United States Army in 1961, you, got, you have to get good at counterinsurgency warfare. And the Army salutes and said yes and makes some nominal changes, mm-hmm. but basically stays wedded to the idea, our main job is fighting on the plains of Central Europe. And, uh, doesn't, doesn't really innovate, as we saw in practice in Vietnam and when the United States Army takes over combat roles. Uh, so the civilians neither have the uh, legitimacy nor do they have the um, uh, political clout to push the military in directions it doesn't want to go because civilians come and go. Secretaries, we have just lived through a period when the average tenure of a Secretary of Defense in the United States was, what, maybe a year? Yeah. Uh, and old hands in the military know what they have to do, which is, it's, in my day, it was called the slow roll. You just wait the, the new boss out, and he or she will rotate out of office, and then you go back to business. And by the way, everybody in the services know this, all the military officers who cooperate with the civilian to help him or her with their agenda. They get punished afterwards when their protector is no longer in, in office. They, I, I watched the United States Navy uh, uh, do business after John Lehman rotated out of office when he was Secretary of the Navy. What's the answer? Innovation in the military has to come from the senior, senior leadership of the military. And it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. When the Navy wanted to shift from an aircraft to a, to a from a battleship navy to an aircraft navy, the guy who led them was a battleship admiral, mm-hmm. Admiral Moffat. And he could do that because the navy respected him. They could not dismiss him as an outsider who was kind of making it up. He was a guy who upheld, embodied, and fulfilled the the the, the, uh, the values of the United States Navy. Uh, but what he did, and what people allied with him did, was they looked at the structure of the environment in which they would have to conduct war mm-hmm. in the future. Not, not what is the enemy going to do. Or what, you know, the United States, as a country, has a 100% record 
predicting who our enemy is going to be and where we're going to fight. We've been wrong all the time since, you know, uh, nobody thought we were going to fight in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. But people have been successful in predicting not who we were going to fight, but how we were going to fight. And people like Moffat and others said, look, airplanes exist. You may not like it, and but they're not going to go away. One way or another, you have to deal with aviation. Uh, and they thought through how you do that. And But more importantly, uh, they took this big picture conception, oh, war is going to be different, and they turned it into concrete operational metrics which could be used to evaluate the performance of officers. Officers respond to specific tasks for which they know they will be rewarded or not. So in simulations and in exercises, Moffat said, you will do the simulated uh, naval war, you will fight this war game, the number of airplanes you can put in the air at one time from your aircraft carriers is my metric of success. You put a lot of airplanes up in the air, you probably win the battle. We can count the number of airplanes you put up in the exercise. This is not subjective. We can, and, and so that means what? That means you have to get your carriers in the right position. It means you have to have the logistics lined up to supply them with the gasoline when they run. You have to have the munitions. You have to have trained your crews in recovery time so that they actually have all the stuff that makes a new idea real to an officer. It's no longer some airy fairy. The new way of there's a new way of warfare we have to take into account. No, 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 no. Logistics, you have the logisticians, you have to make sure that the aviation gasoline consumption is computed and the carrying capacity, all this kind of nitty-gritty stuff. Then an officer, oh, okay, now I know what I'm you want me to do. Now I know how you're going to evaluate me. I'm I I I'm I, I can do what an officer is supposed to do, which is intelligently follow orders. That's that's the chain, okay? You have an understanding of the character of the change in the warfare. You change, uh, you translate that into a concrete measure of performance. You evaluate a person. And then finally, you create a new stable institutional framework so that an officer can work at getting good at this new profession and he can have a job that he goes into when he gets good at doing it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, an officer, you want me to put two years of my life into mastering this new stuff and then... And then what? I mean, am I actually going to be able to use it? Will I be rewarded? Or, or, or will I suffer in my competition with my fellow officers because they've spent their time getting good at the older traditional missions and there are actually jobs that people want people who are good at these jobs to do. So, you need, so when the Marine Corps to create, wants amphibious warfare, it creates a fleet Marine force where Marines can go work in amphibious warfare, get good at it, get promoted, rise up to the top, become general. So what you do is you avoid this problem of displacing existing elites, which is hard to do, by saying, no, the process is about gradually introducing a new cohort of young officers and working with them, protecting them, and helping them advance in this new skill. So after 20 years, you have people who have mastered the skill. They've risen from lieutenant to, uh, to uh, colonel or captain or, fl or flag rank. It takes about 20 years. And historically, that's what we've seen. It took about 20 years for the United States Navy to get to the point where it had a force in being, which was not just the hardware, mm -hmm. but the human beings, who had thought through, what do I do with this new thing? Um, uh, sometimes there are shortcuts. Uh, sometimes you can uh, co-opt selected officers 
who are kind of old school, mm-hmm. but they're unusual. They're relatively, and you can have them uh, skip ahead in a sense, and that gives you some allies. And, uh, you can avoid some of the conflicts, in, internal organizational conflicts, uh, by disguising your innovation. Oh, I'm not going to get rid of battleships. I like battleships. Aircraft carriers are going to help the battleships. We'll help you find the enemy battleships, and then you can you guys can have the battleship battle, uh, which was partly true, but mostly not true. The uh, Marine Corps invents amphibious warfare, which is which is what it's going out and attacking a defended island and seizing it, and taking away. It is by definition offensive. In the 1920s and 1930s, the United States was an isolationist, isolationist country. We had signed a treaty outlawing war. So you had a little bit of a political problem. And the Marines did what? said, well, FIB, we're, we're practicing base defense. Somebody might try to take away our islands. We have Puerto Rico. The Germans might try to seize Puerto Rico. We have to figure out how we'd stop them. Well, how do you do that? Well, we have to practice an, an attack on that island so we can defend against it. And, and maybe we have to seize some islands of our own to help protect Puerto Rico. So there, were, there were, the people who did this were not ivory tower academics. The people who did this knew what really uh, you had to do in, in the world of bureaucratic politics. So to sum up, make a long story short, uh, the uh, alternative perspective to what argument I make is that smart civilians will see the nature of the problem, pro- problem They'll have enough political power, they'll enlist allies within the military, and they'll push it through. Uh, I don't think the record of that is is that convincing. The alternative way is you have to uh, wait for or identify a senior military leader who is standing within his own service Mm -hmm. to lead and protect a process in which young officers get introduced into a new promotion pathway in which they get good at and rewarded for mastering a new skill and then over 20 years or so, the innovation takes place. It's different in wartime. In wartime, uh, people are killed. People can be removed for cause. So the demographic shift can be faster. But it's harder in some sense in war because of the fog and friction of war. Sure. Uh, the enemy doesn't want you to learn of what his weaknesses are and how you deal with them. People are exhausted and, and afraid. So. Uh, it's hard to pay attention. And they're busy fighting battles. They're not busy collecting data to help people figure out what to, what's new. Uh, but it does happen. Uh, Michael Hunsaker, who is going to be visiting uh, this department, give a talk, writes about how the organizational structures that made this possible uh, were, were visible in World War I. Basically, a decentralized operational s- structure. So we had lots of people in the field trying to solve the problem in different ways. Right generating a lot of alternative perspectives, but a centralized training and doctrine command. So that once you figure out what the right way to proceed is, everybody gets on the same page mm-hmm. with music. The British Army had decentralized operation and decentralized training, which meant some units learned and got really good, but other units stayed doing what they were doing and didn't get the benefit of learning because they were free to do their own training and doctrine on their own. I've spoken for too long, but that's kind of a very <laughs> quick uh, run-through of uh, the... Uh, the essence of the argument. No, that's and no, no, it's no problem at all. And and I think I think there's a lot there. And the the one that that jumps on me, and I think the one that I have the most questions about, is whether or not what you're talking about in terms of military innovation and having a senior leader who takes ownership of that process. Mm-hmm. If that's if essentially you're waiting for not not dumb luck, so to speak, but but the the lightning bolt to happen and one person is the visionary leader who 
is driving the train, so to speak, on on innovation. And if yeah. that's something that that is scary to me as a military professional, mm-hmm. that I'm waiting for right. the genius at the top right. to make a decision and have that filter down through right. education and training and promotion right. in the hope that that one person understands that 25 years from now, mm-hmm. this is the state of the state of the world and the environment we're going to be operating in. Yeah, people who who are opposed, intelligent people like Barry Posner who are opposed. Well, Steve, basically what you're doing is you have a great man theory of history. Sure. You wait till this idiosyncratic individual emerges. And that's not a theory. That's just sort of some, occasionally something happens, sometimes it doesn't. Okay, fair enough. The counterpart to that is that there are structural conditions which may make it more or less likely for you to take advantage of the statistical probability that some individuals of this kind will arise. In the case of Moffitt, something was done. Once he got in, he got into the office by luck. Uh, maybe he campaigned and there was opposition. But once he was in, he had allies who made sure that he had an unusually long tenure in that office. Mm-hmm. He had allies in Congress and in the Navy who kept him for, in the Bureau of Aeronautics until he died uh, in a, in a uh, Zeppelin accident, basically. So in other words, the occurrence of these uh, unusual individuals can't be predicted on an individual case. Statistically, they will occur. But once you see that happening, you have to seize on it, build on it, and reinforce it. Give them an institutional context within which uh, they can uh, build. I'll give you another example, which I don't write about as much in the book. At the end of World War II, the head of the Air Force, Hap Arnold, was unusually uh, smart and good. And he said, we just fought a big war with manned bombers. We just also saw the invention of nuclear weapons. We're probably not going to be able to stay in the manned bomber business because the explosions are just too powerful. And I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to do two things. I'm going to create the RAND Corporation, which was a combination of scientists and operator, military operators and smart mathematicians and stuff like that, what is the character of intercontinental warfare? And if you look at the charter of RAND, it's about that short. I'm going to give you $10 million, which is equivalent to $100 million today. You're going to go out and figure out what is the character of intercontinental nuclear warfare. And they did some very interesting things, mm-hmm. but it wasn't enough. They also created the Strategic Air Command. Your job is intercontinental warfare. So you work with all these people, and we're going we're gonna to measure, assess how well you can do in terms of various metrics. Uh, in other words, the American military and the American Military Officer Corps is a big place. There are a lot of officers. It is statistically unlikely that none of them will have this kind of interest in and what you need to do is have institutional mechanisms uh, that allow them to have the impact on the rest of the institution uh, that we have seen historically uh, to be uh, uh, to be necessary Um, so right now our problem is we haven't even addressed much less answered the first part of the problem you say what's the future character of warfare Uh, you'll get a wide variety of answers. And the truth is probably that it, we do face a more difficult problem now. We can't say the future of war is counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. We can't fa- say that the future of warfare is warfare that c- is conducted in the presence of nuclear weapons. We can't say that the future of warfare is the RMA. Mm-hmm. It may be all of those, maybe all those combined, maybe none of those. 
So what we need to do, I think, um, is look at some more general problems or else encourage different groups of people to work on different solutions to different questions because we don't know what the right question is. Uh, and build them and keep them uh, as ongoing activities until reality tells us which problem is in fact the dominant problem. In which case you go from a small force which has been working on this problem and you th- you've worked out ways to mo- use a mobilization base to rapidly increase in size. The American, the American Army used to be very, very good at mobilization planning because it used to be very small in peacetime, but we knew we might have to fight a big war. We've lost those skills. Those skills. Now, what, what's the phrase now? You fight with the war with the, uh, the, war with the army you have, as opposed to, no, when you, the war comes, you have some warning time. If you're smart, you'll have built indicators to give you a little bit more warning time, and you've built the structures, which are mostly networks of people and organizations which will allow you to transition rapidly from a small force of prototypes and experiments to a big force of operational stuff. Sure. We used to do this. We, you know, in the 1940s, we did this. Yeah. Um, if you look at how many prototype fighter airplanes we had, how many prototype missiles we had, how many prototypes, there were dozens of them. Because we didn't know what the right kind of force to build was. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a competition among them and kind of the, uh, the uh, reality of Soviet military capabilities in Europe that intercontinental looks better than putting missiles right up close to the Soviet Union. Uh, and so we had a, a wide menu of possible solutions to speak from. I think we should be developing that wider array of uh, solutions now rather than trying to kind of come up with, aha, I'm a genius. This, this is the one. I, I see exactly the right thing to do. Sure. Put all your money on that. Yeah. I would rather, I'd feel much safer saying, well, it could be this. I'm going to put some money on each. People hate that. Oh, one of, the, one of the contingencies might be a major war with China, but I'm going to build a teeny-weeny little force to handle that. That's crazy. Yeah, That's, that's, a, that's a guarantee for another uh, task force Smith mm-hmm. in which you throw the army's uh, only operational army up against the North Koreans. No, no, if, I'm, if you want to fight China, I want a big force. Well, but China might not turn out to be the adversary we fight. It might turn out to be... Hezbollah, it might turn out to be Pakistan. Who knows? Uh, so do you, can you afford to put all your eggs in that basket? Again, a long-winded answer to your question, but it's a reasonable, you know, there are reasonable objections to the perspective that I, I adopted, uh, but that would be the response. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's really interesting, and I, I think it's an important thing to bring up, and not that this is unprecedented, but that we're in a time where there is a lot of confusion about what the character of war mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, even right now. And, mm-hmm forget right. 25 years from now. Um, and then in the past, there, there was, look, is the main enemy Germany or Japan in 1940? Well, I don't know, it might be both. And there was kind of a de facto division of labor. The Marines got very good in Pacific warfare. And the Army learned from the Marines, but they made changes of their own because the experience was not totally relevant. The American Navy basically divided into two navies, one of the anti-submarine warfare Navy of the Atlantic and one of the aircraft carrier Navy of the Pacific. So division of labor is another way of putting this, which is there are different kinds of problems. You can't, or it's very hard, to create one force that's good at handling all of them. That's what we're trying to do now. And we're kind of tying ourselves in knots. Accept the reality that you'll need different organizations for different problems and let them each focus on the problem that they're going to get good at. Sure. Sure. Yeah, and, and again, I think that's interesting that it's, 
you know, we don't know what the character is going to be. The one, the one place I think maybe our current situation is a little bit different than maybe it was in the past, as you highlighted in the in the forties. Hey, what are we developing? What are mm-hmm. we? What are the problem sets we're facing? Is I feel like, and you bring this up relatively early on in your book, the venue of innovation being peacetime or war mm-hmm. seems to be a little more, a little bit more Actually. blurred now than it was previously. Yes. And I'm curious how that maybe. Uh, changes or amends your thinking about the way innovation happens or has to happen you're, in a military you're, you're context. You're exactly right. We're, we're in this kind of neither war nor peace situation now. Um, and there, in that context, in my view, the challenge is to use ongoing conflicts, not only the conflicts that the United States is fighting, by the way, uh, as sources of data about the future character, just as General Don Starry walked the battlefields of the Middle East in 1973, saw the damage caused by wire-guided PGMs against conventional tank forces, and he said, that's, that's the future of war. Uh, we should be learning from our, our own experiences and other people's experiences. Um, but with the conscious challenge that we need to avoid short-term thinking, most of what we do now in terms of learning lessons is what can we learn about ongoing operations to improve our conduct of ongoing operations? And the Army is doing a really good job of that. The Asymmetric Warfare Group did this unbelievably impressive job figuring out how can we respond faster to new IED threats. And they got it down to uh, detecting a new threat to a new training algorithm in a first-person video, I think down to 96 hours. Yeah, it was, it was quick. It was, it was e- easily within a week. Yeah, It was it amazing. Was, but it's not the kind of work that helps you think about getting ready for a war that you might fight 10 years from now. But it's not irrelevant either. The example I gave uh, in uh, Captain Obang's class this morning, we have exquisite capabilities, which we've developed over 10, 15 years now, to pursue high-value targets. Yeah. And people say, well, but we don't need that anymore, right? Because we're not going to be pursuing terrorists. That's all stuff. Well, do we worry about nuclear weapons being produced by people that we don't like? Probably. What do you need to do to produce nuclear weapons? You need a critical number of uh, of very skilled, unique scientists. Are they high-value targets? Well, yeah. How do you find high-value targets? Well, we construct these concentric circles of networks, and then we kind of go for the giant, then we narrow in, and then we localize, and we do all this kind of stuff. And well, that's what you do for terrorists. Is that what you would do for nuclear scientists? Well, yeah, probably. In other words, we are developing in actual operations skill sets, which, if considered properly, might be very relevant for the conduct of uh, problems over the mid to long term. If, if, we, if we ask ourselves to think about it that way. Uh, drones are another example. We've gotten very good at using drones. Why? To find terrorists. Mm-hmm. Well, with some modifications operated in somewhat different ways, would drones be able to help you track mobile transporter erector launchers with, well, maybe. 
In other words, somebody has to ask the right question of the guys who have experience with these kinds of current operations, rather than asking, okay, you're doing X, I want you to do task X 10% better tomorrow because I've changed your, your training algorithms. But the idea is someone there has to be able to, there to, re, to be, recontextualize there has the to be missions demand, that we're doing. There has to be a demand signal which is generated by somebody who's thinking about what's going to be right. the character of warfare 10, 15 years out. So we have the opportunity to accelerate the innovation process if we ask the right question. The Army's Future Studies Group is doing that. I mean, but again, it needs continuity, it needs institutional support. The chronic problem of all these specific uh, ad hoc task forces is that they're staffed with really smart people who are really not only smart, but they're good at getting things done, which means they get yanked away to address other high urgency issues by the boss because you're smart, you've just told me you're smart, I've seen you're smart, you're good at getting things done, and I need problem Z right now. Forget about 10 years from now, right now I'm facing this. So you don't have the continuity that's created, as I said, by the stable institutional frameworks. SAC was forever, you know, you were not forever, but for decades, right? That's all you're going to do. You're going to get good at intercontinental bombing. Well, if you, you know, do that, then people can really begin to focus that. And I think the, uh, the, what I've been saying is you need multiple organizations focusing on these different answers to different questions, uh, utilizing many of the same people with many of the same activities, but kind of aggregated it with the, with the goal, right. with the goal of getting ready for the next war. In terms of the way that the, the military currently is thinking about the future and, and innovation, are we are we better on a practical side or better on a theoretical side? Are we better, like you mentioned, the asymmetric warfare group at taking things that are happening in real time and pushing them down to the force? Or are, are we a little bit better at doing the theoretical, this is what it looks like 15, 20, 25, 40 years from now? No, we're, we're Americans. We're good at practical stuff. Uh, if we have a problem and we need to build a widget to, to, to make that problem go away, we'll do it. And we're, we're better at it than anybody else in the world. Uh, I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, the, the task is facing all countries now. We're, we're, you know, generally speaking, we're in an environment in which information technology is relevant, is very relevant to the conduct of war. If you can find something, you can strike it. If you can strike it, you can destroy it. The task is to find the stuff. What do you need to do to find the stuff? What we're finding out is that you need to aggregate and integrate large amounts of data from different sources, mm -hmm. multi-spectral, multi-sensor and things. Well, what does that mean? It means you have to um, have common macros. Everybody has to say, this is the same place, this is the same time, so we can put it all together. That's a very hard problem, uh, but it's a very practical problem. And I, as far as I can tell, we're working on it harder and better than anybody else. Does that mean we'll be able to conduct warfare on the rimland of Eurasia against the kinds of opposition we're likely to find? Because they're getting good at this too. Well, don't know. Does that mean that we have to make information operations to deceive the enemy a central aspect of warfare? That's a big theoretical way. Nobody asks that question. Is information more important relative to firepower and maneuver? We, we don't even know how to put that into a framework that anybody could begin to work on. So are we good at the theoretical side? No. Historically, the Russians, then the Soviets, and now the Russians have been very good at this. They've been terrible at building the right kind of stuff and building the right kind of forces. But the, the Russians figured out Blitzkrieg in the 1920s. 
but then Stalin put the, all the generals in jail or, or killed them. So, you know, uh, but we're better at the practical side. The Chinese, it looks like, are also better at the theoretical side. They're getting the problem is they're getting pretty good at the practical side. The Chinese have Sun Tzu to guide them. All warfare is deception. All warfare is about managing the perceptions of the adversary. That's all. That's that's all warfare is. So they got the theoretical context for our particular environment right now, where information obviously is important. And so far, they've been trying to play catch up on the hardware. The trouble is, they they, they seem to be getting pretty good at catch up. Well, so, and, and that was going to be my next question: yeah. is who who in the realm of theory is better at doing this sort of thing? And if it's the Russians and the Chinese, the Russians and the Chinese, I can I can point to specific documents that they're good at. I would speculate. Um, uh, and, and Israelis have written about this, that some of the non-state actors like Hezbollah. Are, why? Because they're born as secret organizations that can only exist if they hide. And they're trying to shift the, burden, the, the balance of civilian support away from the government and towards them, which means they are born thinking about deception and shaping the perceptions of a civilian population. That's all that they had to do when they whereas we were born in the American Civil War in World War II as a firepower maneuver. Uh, so it's kind of in their genes. Uh, and I'm, there are uh, Israelis like Itai Brun have written about uh, Hezbollah has had their revolution in military affairs. It's completely different from ours, mm -hmm. uh, but it's more focused on shifting the civilian balance of perceptions and uh, creating the perception in the United States that you can't win the war. All that kind of stuff. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I actually give an example in, in my class to my students where I'll put up uh, the joint operating principles that we, we have in JP1 and JP3. And then Hezbollah's principles of war mm -hmm. and contrast them mm -hmm. with the idea of saying, we're, you know, right. we're trying to achieve potentially the same ends, the same political outcome. Mm -hmm. But look at the methods that we're using to do this and what's important to right. us and how we understand this right. fight. Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting that thinking about the non-state actors in terms of how they think about innovation and, and the theory of, of how you do that innovation is, is interesting. And what you have just done is something which is uh, unfortunately too unusual in the United States, uh, which is you're asking, how do the other guys think? Usually we say, well, what's our plan? How are we going to extra? And we're, we're kind of, and our government and our military is so complicated. There's just getting all of our, what do you call it, getting all of our ducks lined up. Mm -hmm. uh, we, in our capstone programs and most of our military institutions, what do you spend your time doing? Meeting your counterparts in the other parts of the rest of the American government. What's the mantra that we teach people? Dime, diplomacy, intelligence, military. In other words, the, the whole of government approaches. In other words, it's all looking at what we are and what we do. And you look at the relatively small amount of time. What does the other guy think? You know, the enemy gets a vote, as we say. Uh, how much time do we spend uh, studying their concept of warfare. Not that they have it right or wrong, but we need to understand what their concept of war is to anticipate their behavior. Um, so we're not as good at theory, and we're not as good at studying the other, and we know for sure that they study the hell out of us. They want to know what all of our strengths and all of our weaknesses are so that they can kind of manipulate us by playing on our predispositions. Uh, and they're good at it. So. Despite the wealth of human talent and technology that we have, we have some outstanding problems, salient problems that we need to address, uh, probably by means of uh, new institutional arrangements. Uh, 
but uh, uh, I, I'm a civilian professor. It's not my job to tell the military uh, how to configure it. This is an interesting question. It would be interesting to see what, what you guys uh, think might be some ways to respond. So we've kind of gone far afield in our discussion here, and we're, we're running out of time. I always ask, because we are here at West Point, what this discussion, in your opinion, how cadets or junior officers should understand it or make use of it or be prepared in the future to actually be the, the practitioners, the ones uh, doing innovation. Um, so I'm just curious if I'm a cadet or a, a lieutenant or a captain, what I should be doing with this information in the near term. The story I've told is that is innovation is a top-down, senior leader-driven uh, process. Uh, a, a lieutenant in the United States Army is not going to stand up to the chief of staff of the United States Army and say, sir, with all respect, you've got it all wrong. This is the way we should go. It's just, it's not that way. It shouldn't be that way. It won't be that way. That does not mean that younger officers don't have responsibilities and, and, and possibilities. Uh, you can think. You can study. You can learn about what other countries are doing. You can look for assignments that take you to places where you get smarter about by looking at what is visible about the emerging character of warfare. You can engage in blogs and other forms of intellectual interaction with others of your peers who have seen different parts of the puzzle. So you say, and so you can prepare yourself intellectually. You can't change the organization from the bottom. You can prepare yourself intellectually so that when somebody from the top says, it's about time that we started thinking about X, Y, and Z. You can raise your hand and say, we, we have been thinking about X, Y, and Z. We have some initial work. It's probably very flawed, but it's the basis from which you can begin the study of what to do with the regulars with high technology weapons, what to do about operations in a uh, information denied, uh, electronic magnetic information denied environment. Mm -hmm. What would happen if all of our fancy technology doesn't work? Well, you can think about that. In other words, the part that we're not that good at, the intellectual, theoretical side, because institutionally and organizationally our imperatives go in the other direction, is something that younger people, paradoxically, have more freedom to work on. Uh, so, see, well, concrete, I said people should be concrete. Seek out assignments which put you overseas in contact with other people working on these problems, because uh, I, I, I spend a lot of my time talking to Indians. Why? They're facing the Chinese on their border. I spend a lot of time talking to Japanese. Why? They're facing the Chinese and the North Koreans right across the, the straits. They're motivated and they're in a position to learn things that we may not see. Uh, learn languages. If you have access, if you learn languages, you have access to the body of data that you don't have access to otherwise. Uh, broaden your experience. If you're a military operator, learn technology. If you're a technology, learn military operations. Because only by combining knowledge of the two can you achieve any kind of cold, under, uh, satisfactory understanding uh, of the kind of warfare that we might need to conduct. Uh, work with people in civilian corporations and universities to say, if we had suddenly to produce a lot more of this, what would you do? Mm -hmm. he, said, well, we, you, he said, well, we can't do that. Well, what could you do? You know. When people thought about uh, how to produce thousands of airplanes for World War II, they went to the airplane companies. How would you do it? We can't do that. We don't, we, just, we, don't, we don't know. So they went to the automobile companies. They knew how to make thousands, millions of 
machine. So mm-hmm. how can you build an airplane? Well, we don't. Yeah, I guess. And so the Ford Motor Company wants to producing twenty five thousand B twenty fours because they could. Well, somebody knew that in nineteen forty, before we got into World War. All right, you can do that kind of work. You collectively, the West Point student population. You have you have capstone projects. You have research projects. You're encouraged to reach out to to uh, other parts of the American Army to learn about what they're doing. Reach out to the asymmetric warfare group. Reach out to the future studies group. Offer your services. Help them out. There there are smart people in the army working on this now. Build on that. Same thing would be true for other services. By the way, you notice this is not terribly joint. Mm-hmm. That's okay with me. Um, in fact. Jointness encourages the development of one solution to one problem because everybody has to be on the same sheet of music. That makes life very time-consuming because getting everybody on the same page and it tends to make you say very little because you can only agree about only the most general statements. If you ask Air Combat Command to come up with a way of conducting aerial bombardment in a heavily defended air defense environment, they'll give you something specific. It may not be right, Okay, then you go to the Marine Corps Aviation Club. Okay, what's your answer? Maybe you'll disagree with the Air Force. That's good. In other words, jointness is not always good. Service-specific, service-focused activities can be part, part of the building blocks for the overall solution. And here at West Point, that's what you can work on. So here at West Point, that's what you should do. Dr. Rosen, I feel like we could talk for a while longer about all this. There's there's plenty there's plenty there, um, but I gotta let you go. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. My and, pleasure. Uh, Thank you. For happy to have me. you come uh, come speak at West Point. So. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to stay in touch with MWI on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks again.